Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And the brothers have some Bibles. If you need a Bible and you'll want one to follow along, so get their attention as they make make their way back. They'll get one of those to you. It's marked for you at Ecclesiastes 12, the final chapter. And this is the last message in our series in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 12. When I was in my 20s, I coached a Saturday morning hockey team for children ages 5 to 8. It was a floor hockey team in a, in a gym. And I took away a couple of things from that experience that have stayed with me. One is that some parents are crazy. I mean, I had this quaint idea that our objectives were, one, to teach the kids how to play the game, two, to teach them teamwork and sportsmanship, and three, to have fun. So as such, it was my philosophy that all the kids would play roughly equal amounts of time. What I failed to realize was, according to some, even many of the parents, is that their child is going to be the next Steve Eiserman. We were quite a talented group, to say the least. Everybody had the next budding Steve Eiserman. But what are the chances that on a team of 15 elementary-age children, at least half of them are surefire NHL prospects? So I learned that you do not want to be that parent. Living your life vicariously through your child so that they will become what you were deprived of because all your coaches were too dumb to know talent when they saw it or because you had that knee injury in 10th grade that held you back. You're sure you could have made it to the pros and your child is going to be given every chance starting when they're three. So I learned from coaching that parents are hard to coach. And I also learned that the kids are hard to coach. And one thing in particular makes it difficult with with children. Children have a tendency to, no matter what sport they're playing, whether it's soccer, basketball, hockey, whatever it is, they all seem to move together as a group in a large clump. They see the ball or the puck And they just all go to it or the one running or skating with it. And the coach's challenge is to teach them to play a position. But in order to do that, you have to provide them a wider perspective. That there's actually a full court or field or rink. And that we spread it out. And when we do that and we play our position, we can as a team advance the ball or the puck. And we can even score. For those very, very, very few children that do make it to the next level. Did you hear that, Dad? Very, very, very few. Their coaches at that next level will record their games and they'll pour over them to see what all is happening on the entire court or field or rink. And they can point that out to the individual players so that they see more than just that limited view that the player has when they're actually engaged in the game. In the case of football, since the field is so large, members of the coaching staff will often be in a booth above the field. They're wearing a headset so that they can see everything that's happening and they can communicate plays and information to those below. 
Now, the most important game, so to speak, that you're ever going to play is the one called life. And I mean real life, not the board game. And the field that you play that game on is vast. In fact, it's the entire world around you. But many people play life the way children play sports. They just move in packs and clumps from one thing to the next, following the crowd, but never seeing the big picture and how they and what they do fits in. This is all because in the words of the book of Ecclesiastes used over and over, it's because we look at life from only under the sun. We don't see the whole field, so our perspective is limited to what's right in front of us. It's limited to what we're currently going through, what our current challenge or struggle is. When we see life from only under the sun, what we don't see then is God's larger purpose, nor how the position we're called to play fits into that purpose. But God does know. And God does see every bit of it. And he's graciously given us the ultimate playbook in the Bible. God's word gives us God's perspective so that we can expand our vision and not get caught up in living merely in light of our present moment and circumstances. Today we come to the end of this wonderful book of Ecclesiastes contained within God's book. And it's fitting that Ecclesiastes concludes with a reminder of the value of the wisdom that's contained within this book, since that's really what it's all been about. I titled the series, How to Find Meaning in a Meaningless World, because Ecclesiastes, like all of Scripture, gives us the widest possible perspective on life, on ourselves, on others, and on our circumstances. So today we're going to be reminded that the Bible tells us how to see life from above the sun. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, you've gathered us. You have gathered us. You've allowed us to be here. You've allowed us the health. You've allowed us the freedom. You've allowed our circumstances to be such that we can be here. Many have made great effort to set aside the time to get their children here. But here we are. Thank you, Lord. And thank you now for this time that we can open your word and learn from it. Help us to learn from your word today. That your word is the prized possession, the treasure that you have given to your people to guide us through life. So that we might have purpose in it and glorify you in all we do within it. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We have inserted in your program this week and every week. An outline, if you don't have that as yet, take that out, I encourage you to do, so you can follow along. Where we see, first of all, that we should cherish the Word of God. We should cherish the Word of God because, first of all, it speaks to us honestly. We cherish the Word of God because it speaks honestly. Verse 8 of Ecclesiastes 12 says, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Now, verse 8 concludes the message portion of Ecclesiastes. The final verses 9 through 14 are concluding remarks telling us to take the message of this book seriously. 
So verse eight concludes the message portion and it ends precisely where it began. Verse eight of chapter 12 is the same as all the way back in chapter one and verse two. So it starts and it ends with the same idea, meaningless, meaningless. And doing that, starting and ending with the same theme or phrase is what's called an inclusio. The teacher mentioned in verse 8 is Solomon who wrote Ecclesiastes. The Hebrew word for meaningless, hevel, has been this multi-purpose word that Solomon has used throughout Ecclesiastes to express the futility of life in a fallen world. That word refers to a breath or a vapor like steam rising from a boiling tea kettle. This is our life, Solomon tells us. It's like a wisp of smoke that's impossible to get your hand around. It's impossible to grasp, and before you know it, it's gone. The psalmist spoke similarly of the ephemeral nature of human life, and he said, everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. Now, by beginning and ending with the same statement, By using this inclusio device, Solomon reinforces one of the main points of this book, namely that there's nothing new under the sun. That's what chapter 1 and verse 9 say. So it started that way. It ends this way. I've told you about a a lot of things in between, and we've kind of wound up where where we started. There's nothing new under the sun. Life is really same old, same old. But it's same old, same old only if it's seen from just under the sun. And so then all is ultimately meaningless all of the time. And so we wind up right where we started. But even though that was what was stated at the beginning of the book, and it's still true at the end, now hear this, hopefully that's no longer true of us. That is, having been instructed for 11 and a half chapters on the fact that life viewed only from under the sun is meaningless, Now our gaze should now be lifted higher to above the sun so that we can see what it's all about and no longer live aimlessly in clumps, just going from here to there without purpose. We've been taught a lot of things in between the first meaningless and the last meaningless. We've been taught that work is meaningless, that there's nothing for us to gain from our restless toil Under the sun. Remember, that's the perspective because it's all just, quote, striving after the wind. Chapter one and chapter two say we've learned that human wisdom is meaningless under the sun, that it only increases our, quote, sorrow and grief. Chapter one says we've seen that whether we're wise or foolish does not even matter from under the sun because we'll all die in the end anyway. Chapter two says we've seen that pursuing pleasure is meaningless. That wine, women, and song, that parks and houses and vineyards and gold and silver and treasure. Chapter 2 says, nothing is to be ultimately gained under the sun. Chapter 4 showed us that power is meaningless. Chapter 5, that money is meaningless too because it causes no end of trouble as we look after our possessions, which may be lost at a moment's notice. And even if we manage to hold on to our money, chapter 5 told us, It cannot satisfy our souls. And then there's the last of all meaningless things in life, which is the meaninglessness of death. 
Most of us will have to endure the indignities of growing old that we saw last week from the first part of chapter 12. And then after that, the final absurdity of returning to the ground from which we were made. Dust we are and to dust we shall return, we're told back in chapter 3. In the midst of all of this gloom and doom, there have been rays of light, if you've been with us through the series. We've seen that in spite of all the meaninglessness, we can still rejoice in life's many blessings, especially when we see them from God's perspectives and as gifts from Him. Solomon in this book has encouraged us to eat and drink and find satisfaction in our work as best we can, Ecclesiastes 2. He's told us that there's a time for healing and for harvesting, for laughing and dancing, for loving and making peace in chapter 3. That there is a time to rejoice in the prosperity that God so richly provides in chapters 5 and 7 and to enjoy life with the one whom we love in chapter 9. There is joy in the world under the blessing of a faithful God. But what we're mainly supposed to see is how meaningless life is without God. How little joy there is under the sun if we try to leave our Creator out of His universe. By the time we get to the end of Ecclesiastes, we have to admit that Solomon has thoroughly proved his case. The Bible has, as it always does, presented an honest look at life. But thankfully, God does not leave us there leaving us in our despair as we look at how meaningless life is. God does not leave us there in this book of Ecclesiastes, nor in the Bible as a whole. God has purpose in telling us that we have no purpose without Him. It's to point us to something better. So not only should we cherish the Word of God because it speaks to us honestly, but I say in your outline. We should cherish it because it speaks to us carefully. It speaks to us honestly and carefully. Now, when I use the word carefully, I just mean, as the name suggest, the word suggests as you think about it, full of care. So it means that the Bible, including this book of Ecclesiastes, takes full care in selecting what is written so that it's precisely what we need. Verse 9, not only was the teacher wise, but he also imported knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. Verse 9 is telling us that God, through Solomon, took great care regarding what to include in this book. Solomon took the time to evaluate all the wise sayings he had heard And then he included only those that were weighty enough to demand our full attention. Proverbs like, anger resides in the lap of fools, as he said in chapter 7. Or, who can straighten what has been made crooked, again in chapter 7. What this verse, verse 9, says about Solomon selecting the most appropriate Proverbs is in keeping with what we know about the book of Proverbs, mainly written by the same Solomon. Because there are a select number of chapters in the book that is that name, book of Proverbs. And yet the Bible tells us this, Solomon spoke 3,000 Proverbs. But he didn't include them all. God, through Solomon, only included those that were most helpful to his people. And this is what God has done in selecting the material 
that is used by the human writers and included throughout the Bible. God has not included everything, only what is needed to achieve his purpose to make the Bible useful to his people. I use that word useful because one of the most famous passages in the Bible about the Bible is 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful. It is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. The Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, letters in your New Testament, and the book of Revelation. He wrote five books, but he tells us in the, the Gospel of John, at the end, that he selected the things that he was going to record about the life of Jesus. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe. John selected material from the life of Jesus, designed to prove who Jesus is, so that we might believe. The Word of God in its entirety is like like that. And Ecclesiastes is no exception. So we should cherish the word of God because it speaks to us honestly about life as a whole. It speaks to us carefully and it speaks to us beautifully. Honestly and carefully and beautifully. Verse 10, the teacher searched to find just the right words and what he wrote was upright. Now that word upright, refers to words of delight. And in fact, it's translated that way in some translations like the New American Standard Bible, for instance. It's telling telling us that Solomon sought to find words of delight. It's a marvelous phrase that expresses the beauty of the Bible. Whether people agree with Solomon or not, no one criticizes his writing style. In fact, the famous American writer Tom Wolfe described Ecclesiastes as, quote, the highest flower of poetry, eloquence, and truth. The greatest single piece of writing I have known. This is the book that gave us phrases that people use sometimes. The sun also rises. To everything there is a season. There is eternity in the hearts of men. Cast your bread upon the waters. Man does not know his time, and on and on it goes. And so we praise God for the beauty of Ecclesiastes. Not just what the book says, but also the way it says it. This is one of the many ways that God reveals his character and shows us his grace. He's a God of exquisite beauty. And he writes that way. It's only appropriate then for the Bible, the book that tells the story of God's salvation to please the ear, to inspire the imagination, to fascinate the mind, to delight the soul. The word of God speaks to us honestly, carefully, beautifully, and truthfully. It speaks to us truthfully. Verse 10 again. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright, that is, words of delight, but then it says, and true. Now, we've already seen that he speaks to us honestly, and now we're saying truthfully. What's the, what's the difference? 
Well, the first point was about looking at all of life in an unvarnished way without sugarcoating it. But here we're speaking of giving instruction that is true. You see, when seeking to speak or write in pleasing and beautiful ways, sometimes the truth gets sacrificed because truth is sometimes hard to hear. And so we mask it in ways that fail to make the truth clear. Sometimes the beauty or the sweetness of the words can obscure the truth of what needs to be communicated. But God has done neither. He's given us this beauty, but he's also instructed us truthfully. I have a pastor friend who I have sat in counseling sessions with. And when he would lead the counseling session, he would seek to use just the right words as he spoke to the individual. And that was a very good thing. He was very thoughtful about what he would say. But very often, people would come away not catching exactly what it was he was confronting them about. Over time, I had to be the hatchet man in those situations. He would be use the artful words, and I would just cut to the chase. This is the deal. This is what's wrong with you. But hear this, friends. Without confrontation with the truth, there is no repentance. And without repentance, there is no salvation or sanctification. Without loving confrontation with the truth, there is no repentance. And without repentance, there is no salvation or sanctification. So Jesus said on the night before he died, your word is truth. And those words, verse 11 tells us. Those words of the wise are like goads. Now, a goad is what a farmer would use to drive an oxen down the road. It's one of the tools of the shepherd's trade. It's a sharp stick that spurs a stubborn beast to keep moving. It's not designed to injure, but to inflict just enough pain to get his full cooperation. When Saul of Tarsus was confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, and later the Apostle Paul, the same Saul, is recounting his conversion experience in Acts chapter 26. And he says, this is what the Lord said to me. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Is it, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. I'm prodding you in a particular direction. I've been prodding you in a particular direction. But you continue and have continued to kick against that. And Ecclesiastes does the same thing for God's people. Although its words may be pleasing, they also inflict a certain amount of pain. They're goads to the conscience, making us uncomfortable enough to turn away from sin. They're designed to be a stimulus to the soul, steering us back onto the right spiritual path. In the days of the early church, one church father said, The mind is roused and spurred by the instructions of wise people, just as much as the body is by an ox goad being applied. So think of Ecclesiastes then as God's cattle prod. Solomon's words push us not to expect lasting satisfaction in money or pleasure, but only in the goodness of God. They steer us away from foolish anger and mocking laughter. They spur us on to patience, contentment, humility, and joy. 
When we forget about God, Solomon prods us to remember our creator. And the moment we begin to think that we're going to live forever, he pokes us in the ribs and he reminds us that we will all soon die. The words of the wise are like goads prodding us on. Verse 11 says as well, their collected sayings are like firmly embedded nails. Firmly embedded nails. This is speaking of the permanence of God's words. Once a wise saying is driven into the mind, it stays there like a nail pounded deep into a block of wood. Life may be a vapor, but wisdom can help us pin it down, giving us a place to hang our experience. The biblical proverbs have a way of nailing us right in the conscience. They also have a way of sticking into our brains. They're so memorable that once we hear them, we never forget them. There are a number of those kind of proverbs in Ecclesiastes. We've seen together from chapter 4, two are better than one. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. In chapter 9, the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong, but time and chance happen to them all, and on it goes. The Bible, God's Word, speaks to us honestly and carefully and beautifully and truthfully and authoritatively. God's word speaks to us authoritatively. All of these words, the wise sayings that get nailed into our hearts and that goad us into action, verse 11 says, are given by one shepherd. Now, this shepherd could be Solomon himself, since he's identified in chapter one as the king over Israel in Jerusalem. And in the ancient world, kings were often identified as the shepherds of their people. But what seems more likely is that the shepherd is none other than God himself. That's why that word shepherd is capitalized in many translations. The English Standard Version, New American Standard. This is the first time at the end of this book that the title shepherd has appeared. Which seems to distinguish the shepherd from Solomon rather than to identify them together. And further, shepherd is one of the noble titles for God in the Old Testament. Most of you are familiar with the famous Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. But also in places like Psalm 80. Hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead your people like a flock. The one shepherd in Ecclesiastes 12 is the one and only shepherd, God Almighty. And this makes Ecclesiastes 12.11 an important verse for the biblical doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. Ecclesiastes is the very word of God. Solomon's words are not merely the thoughts of some skeptical skeptical philosopher. They're part of the inspired, infallible, and inerrant revelation of Almighty God. And so it's not enough to merely admire its artistry and respect its integrity We have to also submit to its authority because it's God's word. As the shepherd of our souls, God uses this book of Ecclesiastes as he uses everything in the Bible to prod us into spiritual action. Verse 12 says, be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Be warned of anything in addition to these words. To these words from God. Of making many books there is no end. And much study 
wearies the body. Now, it's not that we should never read other books or write them for that matter. The truth is, and the Bible teaches elsewhere, that the life of the mind is an important part of Christian discipleship and growth. But all of those books and all other writings are to be evaluated by their adherence to the word of God. So some of you are here and you're saying, you know, I just need more information. I just need need to read a few more things to figure out if this God thing, this Jesus thing is right. Be careful, friend, that you're not using that as an excuse not to follow Jesus. In his novel, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis describes a man from the suburbs of hell who spent his whole life seeking the truth, or so he says. The man wanders somewhere near the borders of heaven where, by the gracious invitation of God, he's invited to enter. But the Spirit warns him, I can promise you, no scope here for your talents, only forgiveness for having perverted them. No atmosphere of inquiry, for I will bring you to the land not of questions but of answers, and you will see the face of God. But the man is not ready to let go of his quest. He wants to study some more before he accepts anyone else's conclusions, and so he says, we must all interpret those beautiful words in our own way. For me, there's no such thing as a final answer. The free wind of inquiry must always continue to blow through the mind, must it not? Listen, God's Spirit says to the man, once you were a child, once you knew what inquiry was for, there was a time when you asked questions because you wanted answers and you were glad when you had found them. Become that child again even now. Yet sadly, the man refuses. When I became a man, he says, I put away childish things. The conversation suddenly ends when the man remembers he has an appointment, makes his apologies, and he hurries off to a discussion group in hell. Are you still seeking spiritual truth? In that quest and surrender to the God who knows the answers. Do not be like the person that Paul warned about in the New Testament. Always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. We should cherish the word of God. And I say in your outline. We should cherish the God of the word. Because it's about him. Verse 13. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Now, this is not the first time that Ecclesiastes has told us to fear the living God. To fear God is to honor and revere him, to worship him as God. At various points, Solomon has told us to fear God because his work is eternal in chapter 3, because he demands holy worship in chapter 5. He's told us to fear God in times of adversity as well as prosperity in chapter 7. He told us that if we do fear God, it will go well with us, chapter 8. And now we're told to fear God and obey Him because one day we'll stand before Him for judgment. And when the Bible says this is the duty of all mankind, it says literally this is the whole of man. The word duty may well be implied, but Ecclesiastes is making a wider point. To say this is the whole of man is to say this is all there is to man.
In other words, this is what life is all about. The most important thing for any person to do is worship God and obey his holy commandments. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God. With all your heart, with all your mind, all your soul. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, why does Ecclesiastes tell us about the final judgment here? Why does it end that way? Because, friends, it means everything matters. Solomon began and ended his spiritual quest by saying that everything is meaningless and that without God, there's no purpose. Is that all there is? He kept asking. Isn't there more to life than what I see under the sun? If there is no God and therefore no final judgment, then it's hard to see how anything we do really matters. But if there is a God who will judge the world, then everything matters. This is not all there is. There's a God in heaven who rules the world. There's a life to come after this life. One day the dead will be raised and every person who has ever lived will stand before God for judgment. And when that day comes, it will be revealed that everything anyone ever did or said or thought has eternal significance. At the final judgment, it will matter how we used our time. Whether we wasted it on foolish pleasures or worked hard for the Lord. It will matter what we did with our money, whether we spent it on ourselves or invested it in the kingdom. It will matter what we did with our bodies, what we saw with our eyes and what our hands touched and our mouths spoke. Whether we obeyed our father and mother will matter. So will that look we gave them and the little comment we made as walking away. What we did for a two-year-old will matter. The way we made time for her and got down on her level. What we said about someone else's performance will matter. The sarcastic remark or the word of genuine praise. The proud boast and the selfless sacrifice will matter. The household task and the homework assignment will matter. The cup of water, the tear of compassion, the word of testimony, all of it matters. The final message of Ecclesiastes is not that nothing matters, but that everything does. What we did and how we did it and why we did it will all have eternal significance. And the reason that everything matters is because everything in the universe is subject to the final verdict of a righteous God who knows every secret. What matters most of all, therefore, is the personal decision that each person makes about Jesus Christ. Ecclesiastes does not end with a promise of grace, but with a warning of judgment. Nevertheless, this book has the gracious purpose of pointing us to the gospel. If it's true that God will bring everything to judgment, then it is desperately important for us to make sure that we will be found righteous on that awesome and momentous day. And the only way to be sure of that, friends, is not to trust in your own righteousness. You don't have enough to stand before a holy God. The only way for you to do that is to entrust your life to Jesus Christ, who has alone has the power to save us from the wrath of God. Into this vain, meaningless world, the Savior came. 
Like us, he suffered all its futility and its frustration. But Jesus did more than that. When the time was right, he took the judgment that we deserve by dying for our sins on the cross. His body returned to the grave, like Solomon said. But on the third day, he rose again, bringing life out of that grave. And soon Jesus will come again. And the Bible tells us God will judge people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. And the Bible says that God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Everything matters. And every person will stand before God. And the question is, with what will you stand before God? If you stand before God with anything less than the full payment for your sin that Jesus made on the cross and the absolutely perfect life that he lived on your behalf, if you have anything less than that, then you will not pass that final judgment before a holy God. When that day comes, everyone who believes in Jesus will stand, yes, before the righteous judge. But thanks be to God, they will look into the eyes of a loving Savior. Trust Jesus, whose victory saves us from life's meaninglessness. Praise be to God. Your take-home truth is this. God has given us his word, and we're to give him our lives. We're going to bow, as we do. Let's thank God for his word. Let's thank God for the Lord Jesus Christ, who took the judgment we deserve upon himself. And when we pray, if you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can do that now. As we pray from your heart to God in your own words, you acknowledge what... You see on the screen that you're a sinner. Christ died for your sin. You're going to repent of your sin. That means, Lord, I'm giving you my life. I'm going to go your way, no longer my way. I ask you to rescue me. I ask you to save me. Let's bow together. Father, thank you again for gathering us. And then thank you for teaching us in your word. Thank you, Lord, for the honesty of your word that gives us life in all its unvarnished fashion. Lord, we thank you that you don't leave us, though, in despair. That even when there is the call to judgment, it's designed to point us to the judgment that you carried out on God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago. Oh, Lord, I thank you that my sin was judged in him, that your anger, your righteous wrath because of my sin was poured out on him and not on me. I thank you along with your people who enjoy that blessed truth as being applied to them personally. And I ask you, Lord, God, the Holy Spirit, move upon hearts in this room now so that those who have been saying to themselves, I just need more information, will bow before the one from whom all information comes. Those who have been making excuses so as not to follow you will give their lives to you, and so that their lips and lives, like our lips and lives, will be turned from being used for our own ends and be used for bringing glory to the God who gave them. We will give you the praise, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.